All right, thank you. Good morning. Uh, we're going to start this morning because, like, hi, it's been a week, right? Um, a lot going on this week, and so I thought maybe we'd start um, maybe adding to our little moment of joy or maybe, like, er, um, with a little TikTok video that came across my social media feed this week that I think sums up the week for me, and I think you might relate to it. So um, Jason's getting that set up. As soon as it's ready, we will share it with you. Here we go. Right now, the Bay Area is like, listen, there's a pandemic, so stay inside. But if there's an earthquake, you're probably safer outside. Except for the smoke, that's not safe to breathe, so you should probably go inside. Except where there's fire, so you might have to evacuate. But you can't evacuate anywhere because of COVID, and we can't have you inside, so you're going to be outside with the smoke. And also an N95 mask, which is safe for the fires, but not for the disease. So you have to wear two masks. Did I get that right? <laughs> oh, can you relate? <laughs> Arr, right? Oh, for those of us living in the Bay Area right now, it feels like so much pressure. There's so many things we're all holding. It's like one thing on another on another, compounding themselves on us. How are we supposed to manage? Sorry, one moment. I'm having a technical issue. Can you turn that off? Okay. How are we supposed to manage virus and heat and lightning and fire and smoke and virtual work and virtual school, but there might be power outages that threaten those things. Like it's all too much. Even as new seasons are beginning, like we were exploring last week, kids are going back to school. Maybe we have new things going on in our workplace. We cannot help but feel this exile persists and, and sometimes maybe feel like it's getting worse. We're far from the life right now that feels like home, right? Well, throughout this summer, we've been exploring this series called Faith in the Exile, looking to this season and the history of the people featured in the Hebrew Bible where the followers of Yahweh, as God was known, found themselves conquered by Babylon, living as exiles in Babylon, separated from their homeland of Israel and Judah. And we've been considering how these exiles maintain some sort of spirituality and community there in exile, and also reflecting on how their experience of faith in the exile might resonate with the season we find ourselves in now, in this insane 2020. Today, we're going to turn to a set of texts that will sound familiar to many of us who've spent any time in church. But my hope is these words will take on new meaning for us as we hear them in the context of this season. Because I suspect that for those of us who identify as Christian and have heard these words in church, we might not realize that these texts actually come to us originally from the exile. These were words written likely during that exile season, probably after the exile had been going for quite a while. And the exiles were probably feeling pretty weary of it, like many of us feel today. These words express what at least one author, or perhaps even a community of authors, believed God was speaking to those still enduring the exile experience many years in. The words I'm talking about are found in the book of Isaiah. And specifically, they make up what many scholars of the Hebrew Bible call 
second Isaiah. So before we get into any specific texts, it's worth asking, what do we mean by second Isaiah? If you open up your Bible's table of contents, you're only going to see one book called Isaiah. So what does the second part come in? Where does that come in? Well, if you haven't had a reason to closely study the Hebrew Bible and specifically the book of Isaiah, you might not know a lot about how most contemporary biblical scholars from both the Jewish and Christian traditions believe the book of Isaiah was composed. Despite what particularly some conservatives might think, it's not widely believed that the entire book of Isaiah was written by one historical prophet who lived in the 8th century and was named Isaiah. Rather, most scholars of the Bible and history have come to believe that the book we call Isaiah was actually written over hundreds of years by multiple authors. There was originally the historic character Isaiah, the historic prophet, who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he predicted that nation's fall to the Assyrians. This is, this is long before uh, what happened to those in Judah being taken to Babylon. He was prophesying to Israel about the Assyrians coming, warning God's people to heed God's warning, repent, turn to the divine, or experience judgment. And that's the first 39 chapters of what we call Isaiah. You might call it first Isaiah. But then there's a clear turn midway through the book. The language evolves. All of a sudden we have Hebrew language that's like a couple hundred years later. The historical setting, clearly different. And after 15 more chapters, another turn comes as well. So what happened? From what we can tell, the words of the historic Isaiah were written down and preserved and passed from Israel to Judah and brought in some form to Babylon. And there in Babylon, a new prophet, or perhaps a community of writers who studied that historic Isaiah's work, you might say Isaiah's disciples living in Babylon, they added chapters to Isaiah's writings. They clearly identified the work they were doing, the, the, the revelation they sensed themselves getting from God, to be inspired by that historic Isaiah who had lived centuries before them. And so they added their part to the revelation from God that he had shared as if they understood their own words to be a continuation of his. And this is the set of 15 chapters from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55, known as Second Isaiah. Now, after the exiles returned from exile and they reestablished themselves in Israel, they wrote the final chapters of the book, what scholars will even call Third Isaiah. But Second Isaiah is what we're concerned with in this series, because that's the set of texts that come from the exile. So what did this second Isaiah have to say to those living in exile? Well, these 15 chapters have a lot in them, including a number of important theological developments that were taking place. There's just two big themes I want to explore today that we find in this set of writings. We're going to look at these two overall messages that the writer or the community behind Second Isaiah seem to be naming to their audience, and because I, I think they might resonate with us too in some helpful ways. So I'm going to name the two themes. I'm going to show you some specific passages that speak to them, and then we'll consider how those themes would have landed for the exiles 
and how they might land for us. So the first theme could be summed up perhaps this way. We have not been forgotten. Yahweh is returning to lead us out of exile. The first theme that you see really emerge in 2nd Isaiah is we haven't been forgotten. Yahweh is returning to lead us out of exile. Now the section of Isaiah known as 2nd Isaiah is structured with what scholars call an inclusio. An inclusio was another popular literary technique in the ancient world, like some of the other ones we've been talking about recently. This one is, is a technique in which a book or a section is marked by the repetition of an idea that appears at the beginning and then also at the end. Okay? It's, in more contemporary literature, we might talk about something being bookended by an idea or by the same language. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. Okay, a theme that starts that you see at the beginning of a work and it comes back at the end and it's a way for the author to name this is a central idea. I am using this idea to frame everything else I'm writing. Okay, so this idea that we see appear at the beginning and the end is that Yahweh remembers God's people and is coming to lead them out of exile. Let's take a look at how second Isaiah begins. Uh, starting with Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Skipping ahead a few verses. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So here we have these words in 2nd Isaiah, words that signal a turn from what we've seen in the previous chapters of Isaiah, doom and warning to comfort and hope. The prophetic voice is no longer pronouncing judgment as it had done earlier in Isaiah or as many of the other prophetic texts that lead up to the exile do. Something has now shifted and the emphasis isn't so much on judgment, but on relief, on return, on restoration. The image the author draws on is one that would have resonated powerfully to the audience of exiles. It's an image of a highway being built in the desert, a highway for the divine to come to God's people in Babylon and also for the divine to lead them out. And the most straight, clear way for the divine to take God's people from Babylon back to Israel would have actually been through the desert. Remember this map that we looked at early in this series, we'll share that again, okay? That shows the journey from Israel to Babylon. As you can see, the way that was often traversed to get from one place to another was to go over, 
to go north and then over. Either way, okay? That way you avoid the harshest desert. There's desert between Babylon and Israel. But here, the prophet is calling for the divine to like make this clear path of return. The prophet is imagining God bringing down hills and filling in valleys in the desert. And of course, that language extends past the literal building of a highway. The image of the highway built in the wilderness also rings metaphorically on multiple levels. Second, Isaiah calls the people of Judah to ready their hearts and spirits to turn from any practices that isolate them from Yahweh, to purify themselves, make themselves ready for this coming, to make a clear path internally for God. But it also speaks metaphorically to the bigger life circumstances, the political circumstances surrounding the exiles. You see, systems need to be toppled for the exiles to be released. The rulers of Babylon need to be taken down. Political and social breakthroughs are needed for the people in exile to be able to return home. They need to see a substantial change to their present circumstances. And indeed, second Isaiah goes on to speak a bit later of political change that they believe God is bringing. The prophet predicts that the King Cyrus of Persia will come and conquer Babylon and be used by Yahweh to release the exiles and return them to their homeland, a scenario that does indeed play out. All of these resonances, the idea of a literal path being built in the desert, of an internal path to, of, for God in the hearts of God's people, and a path of the systems around them, the political systems being upended. All of those would have rung together in a powerful way to this exile community as it recalled an earlier part of their own story and made that story relevant for them in their time. You see, what the prophet seems to be describing in 2nd Isaiah is a new exodus, a new exodus. Remember, the exile was a time in which the people from Judah held on to community and faith by retelling their stories, even writing them down for the first time, beginning the work we've come to know as the Bible. And in that set of ancient origin stories, there was another time in their history that told these people that, got, that they had found themselves in a land that wasn't their own, powerless and oppressed. In the exile, the people from Judah stuck in Babylon remembered the stories passed down by their ancestors of being slaves in Egypt. They remembered the tales they'd heard since childhood of the way that, that God, Yahweh, had heard the people's cries and had God's heart moved and sent Moses to free them through amazing signs and wonders. And they recalled the tales of the very creation being shaped in powerful ways from catastrophic plagues descending to pressure the Egyptian Pharaoh to waters parting in the people's path so that their exiles, the exiles ancestors could pass through on dry land and traverse through a path created in a desert to get to a promised land. They recalled how God led them through the wilderness represented by a cloud of fire 
And now in the midst of their own exile, they imagined the divine as a shepherd guiding God's people on this new highway through the desert, once again leading God's people out of danger and oppression and into solace and new life. Now, as I mentioned previously, this first text may ring with recognition for many of us who've spent time in church because of how it's referenced in the Gospels written centuries later. When John the Baptist appears in the desert preaching by the Jordan and inviting his followers to get ready for the arrival of God's anointed, the gospel writers recall this passage in Isaiah. We can see it in Matthew 3 as John is introduced. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, I think Christians have seen this quote and not quite understood why the gospel writers include it. A lot of them, and maybe perhaps a lot of us, have applied what I would call actually a reductionist kind of reading that says, see, Isaiah predicted this centuries ago, therefore Jesus is clearly the answer the world's been waiting for. That's why Matthew quotes Isaiah. As if Isaiah 40 was written intending for someone like John to arrive, announcing someone like Jesus. Like that's what the text is about. But the truth is, that's not really the way the Bible seems to work. Things don't often have just one meaning or one interpretation, even within the Bible itself. Prophecies often don't just have one prediction and then one fulfillment. The meaning and resonance is layered. It unfolds over time. It's what some scholars call multivalent. There's more than one meaning. Initially, Isaiah 40 was written to speak to folks in exile, letting them know they weren't forgotten. Just as Yahweh remembered the Hebrew slaves and delivered them, God would deliver the exiles. It wasn't saying the exiles simply need to wait for relief until Jesus comes at 600 years in the future. That would have been pretty cold comfort. Rather, I believe what we see throughout the arc of scripture is the spirit bringing new meaning and new resonance and new hope to folks over time. So in the exile, the community stuck in Babylon is given hope by looking to the Exodus. As the prophet tells them, just as God brought out the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, God will bring you out of exile. And in Jesus' time, the gospel writers connected the life and work of Jesus to have the same kind of resonance. Once again, God is ushering God's people out of exile. That's what Jesus is here to do. God is delivering them some way into promise from a place of feeling abandoned to recognizing God's coming. Just as the prophet of second Isaiah had been calling folks to prepare themselves, to prepare their hearts, prepare their spirits for Yahweh's next arrival and their own deliverance. These gospel writers saw John doing a similar prophetic work announcing a new exodus from exile to come, which the people in John and Jesus's day needed to make themselves ready for. 
and which would upend the systems of the world in powerful ways. In addition to this week being a week of heat waves and lightning storms and fires and virtual school for many of our kids, it was also the virtual democratic convention. Now, I don't know how much you watched or didn't, how excited you are or not about our candidates, but the fact remains that even in the midst of all these crises we're enduring, we, ha we can't deny we are also on the cusp of perhaps one of the most significant elections in our lifetimes. As this pandemic plays out, it becomes more and more clear every day. Government matters. Leadership matters. Systems that are bigger than any of us and the people who manage them shape our lives in powerful ways. And the consequences truly are life and death. We need an upending. We need a reckoning. We need a highway to be built in the wilderness with the strongholds of wealth and greed and power hoarding being pulled down and the valleys of unemployment and bankruptcy and lack of affordable health care being filled in. We need shepherds who will care for the vulnerable and help all of us to walk into freedom and life and deliverance from exile. We need to prepare ourselves to do our part, to show up in our democracy in every way we can. And as people of faith, we need to pray with our words and with our feet, following the divine spirit whose heart we know is moved by the cries of the oppressed and will always continue to come to bring the exodus of liberation. That is our work to participate in that same spirit of Second Isaiah. Second Isaiah reminds us that again and again, the theme has been repeated. We may suffer seasons of separation where we feel abandoned by God, but that is not the end of the story. The one our ancient spiritual ancestors called Yahweh is coming and we can hold on to hope that sooner or later we will move out of exile exodus will come the shepherd is coming to lead the sheep into clearer pastures we must be ready for the journey we must call upon the divine to bring it soon I told you when presenting this theme of New Exodus that it was um, one that, that appears at the beginning and also at the end of the work of Second Isaiah. We've already heard the words that come at the beginning. Now I'm just going to invite you to hear these words that come at the end and consider how they might speak to your own heart in its need of an exodus right now. How would this have landed for you as an exile to hear? You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. 
the hope for a new exodus isn't the only major theme we see in second Isaiah. The other theme that I think would have resonated for the exiles and might resonate for us is this. Our suffering has meaning. Our suffering has meaning. Second Isaiah is also well known as the home of the bulk of texts that biblical scholars call the suffering servant poems. These are poetic scriptures that describe someone going through immense trial. But in these texts, the suffering finds a purpose. It's not just senseless. The most famous of these poems is found in Isaiah 52 and 53. I'll read some excerpts here. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So again, even more than the first text we looked at, Hearing Isaiah 52 and 53, those of us from the Jesus tradition probably can't help but think of him and the way our tradition has looked at this text of speaking of Jesus himself. And while I do think that this text has a powerful level of resonance with the Jesus story and the way that the life and work of Jesus echoes the ancient words of second Isaiah, to only hear Isaiah 53 in that way alone misses the intent and purpose of this prophetic word to the audience whom it was addressing. When it was first spoken, this was a word of hope to an audience experiencing the pain of exile. For the people who were receiving this word, the suffering of God's servant was not primarily about some future savior that might come. Likely for this exile audience, these words were speaking to their present condition. The servant who suffered but who would also be redeemed was them. 
We've seen before, as in the Book of Lamentations, that ancient Hebrew poetry has a strong sense of corporate solidarity. And it often personifies the community of Israel or Judah as one individual. In 2nd Isaiah, this tradition is clearly at work. Some of the other servant poems that are a part of 2nd Isaiah leading up to this make it a bit more explicit. I'll just show you one of several examples. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you, descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you, and I said, you are my servant, singular. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Here it's clear that it is the community called Israel, the descendants of Abraham, that are spoken of as Yahweh's servant, not just one individual. You see, these texts about the suffering servant were speaking first and foremost in the exile to those who had endured the suffering of the exile. To them, Yahweh is speaking. Their suffering is not in vain. It is not without meaning, simply suffering for suffering's sake. God would help their suffering mean something. God would redeem it. At the end of Isaiah 52, the first part of what we just read, the prophet depicts the kings of the earth becoming speechless as they witness the redemption of Yahweh's servant. And in this picture, the nations of the earth turn and they see the people of Israel as the ones who they have unjustly treated, suffering on behalf of all creation. The servant Israel has been crushed because the other nations have oppressed this servant. They have sinned against this servant. They have treated him violently and unjustly. But now they get it. Yahweh intends to redeem the servant. The servant of God would be lifted to a place of prominence and their suffering as well as their redemption would be assigned to the nations of the whole world of Yahweh's sovereignty and faithfulness. Throughout this series, we've recognized the important role that lament played in the spirituality of the exiles. The exiles processed their suffering through forms like poetry that gave them permission to name their agony and wrestle with it before God. But in books like Lamentations, in these laments, the voice we hear is always the voice of the lamentor. The lamenter doesn't understand what's happening to them. They're just giving voice to how crappy it is. Here, in these texts, in 2nd Isaiah, it's as if we have God now responding to the people's laments. God is affirming their experience. God is acknowledging their suffering, echoing their lament. But God is also speaking hope that this suffering can now take meaning, that Yahweh could perhaps use it to lift up God's people and reveal God's self. I was a college student in my late teens when I first started connecting with faith in a real way and developing what I came to call a personal relationship with Jesus. I found myself encountering the divine in ways that I couldn't always make sense of, but I also couldn't deny. They seemed powerful and true. 
I experienced a sense of love and acceptance I hadn't known before, which regularly brought me to tears. But I also had deep questions that made it hard to trust this God I felt I was also drawn to. You see, I'd had a history as a girl of sexual violence. My story was all too common, having experienced sexual abuse by a member of my extended family, which set me up for a pattern of abusive relationships and a history of shame and self-loathing that had shaped my young life. So when it came to connecting with this God, I couldn't help but wonder why. If there was a God, why did this God let this evil happen to me? Why didn't God stop it? How could God be good if this was allowed? I lived in the tension of those questions for a while without any clear wisdom. And then one day I had a powerful prayer experience, what I would call maybe a mystical experience, as if the divine met me in a personal memory. I saw in my mind's eye again a familiar moment of trauma. But in this experience, the trauma began to be transformed. I saw the experience through the eyes of a loving, heartbroken, present parent who was there with me, never abandoning me, weeping alongside me, loving me fiercely. And I felt as this divine parent viewed this moment, an equally powerful divine resolve. It was as if God, the God of the universe in that moment was committing all of God's energy and heart to the healing of this little girl, knowing the divine resolve toward me would not end until I was in the moment in the future where I could experience that divine love firsthand and know God's care and healing. In that moment, that moment of revelation and transformation, that mystical moment, the question of why faded from view. It wasn't any longer the primary question that riddled my heart. I realized that question had masked a deeper one, one that I felt in my bones the divine had answered now. That's the question of where were you when I suffered? Were you there? Did you care? Do I matter? These were the questions I felt God reaching out to communicate to me in that moment. Yes, Leah, I was there. I saw everything. I have always been there. I have seen the suffering and I have always been committed to your healing and redemption just as I am today. I believe that God delivered on that promise, bringing me my own personal exodus from exile. I've experienced freedom and redemption in my sexuality, which has given me life again and again now in the nearly 20 years since Jason and I first started dating. My journey of exodus has also shaped my capacity to sit with others in pain and hear their stories 
not needing to minimize their questions or give them unhelpful, unsatisfying answers, but simply to be present and let them know their suffering is seen and affirmed and they are loved in it. I don't believe God chose for me to be hurt so that all of that could come to pass. I don't believe that. But I do believe the one I know as Jesus has been with me, has helped turn my suffering into something else, something meaningful and life-giving. My suffering has had meaning. This is the hope that I think Second Isaiah is also speaking to those in exile. It doesn't adequately answer the question of, of why we suffer. That's a question that has been enigmatic through the ages, and, and honestly, the Bible doesn't take a clear position. But the picture of the suffering servant reminds the people of God that they are seen, that their pain is witnessed and honored by the sacred, and that their suffering is not the end of the story. The oppression will come to an end. The suffering will be redeemed. Exodus will come. The people of God will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. In the midst of all the challenges of our own exile, challenges that have been so fresh and real this week, it can be hard to know where to go with faith these days. So many of our questions can't be easily answered. But I believe in the same way that divine spirit was at work in the writings that we call Second Isaiah. God wants to speak to us in ways that meet us where we're at and also lift our heads to look beyond our present circumstances. Yes, whatever you are experiencing today, whatever fear you may be feeling, whatever loss you may be grieving, whatever stress you are absorbing, it is real. It needs to be named. You can keep lamenting as long as you need to. It matters. It has meaning. And it is also not the end of the story we are in the midst of. As people of Jesus-centered faith, we recognize there has been more than one exile and more than one exodus in our history, but that we are a part of a story that is looking towards an end that will be fully redemptive and fully lasting. When the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, sharing his own prophetic vision from the Spirit, he also recalled words that come from the Isaiah tradition, holding them forward as a part of the promise that the divine heart has for all of creation. He was imagining a final enduring exodus in this way. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things had passed away. 
May this be the hope that lifts our eyes to the horizon and gives us strength to endure our exile until Exodus once again comes. Amen. Amen. Mm. Why don't I pray for us before we move into our time of conversation? Mm, God, we welcome your presence. We name it is so hard right now. It is so hard to find hope in the midst of one more piece of exile, one more layer. Would you be speaking to us in that sacred way that you see our suffering, that you are committed to our healing, that there will be exodus, Would you call us to the places where we are a part of the exodus, where we need to ready ourselves to do the work? And would you minister to the places that need to hear and need to know that our suffering has meaning, that it matters to the divine heart? And that, Jesus, you find ways, miraculous ways, to redeem it. Amen. Amen.